in Chinese, binfa means the, the methodology of moving armies, but it's more as much about the art of peace as it is about mm -hmm. the art of war. Art of war sounds a lot cooler. Right? Nobody would buy it if it was called the art of peace. A few weeks ago, I caught up with Byron Clatterback, who dialed in from his hotel room in Thailand. He is one of the most incredible leaders that I've come to know. And not only is he an immensely kind, fun and insightful human being, he is also one who commands the attention of every room that he steps into. You will not miss him by his signature cowboy boots, nor by his warm American charm. The man is not only fluent in Mandarin Chinese, he also has a black belt in martial arts. Byron is the former CEO of Seacom, a pan-African submarine fiber telecommunications company. Under his leadership, Seacom grew into one of the best recognized technology companies in Africa. I hope that you learn from and enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm on a hardcore lockdown. I got a treadmill behind me. It's been tough eight days, but it's over on Monday. If you're coming into Thailand, it depends where you're coming from. I was in the U.S., so U.S., they've cut it down to 11 days because you've done the PCR test 72 hours before you fly. So in effect, you arrive, they give you a PCR test. Five days later, they give you another PCR test. And then when I leave, they give me the last final PCR test a day before I go. I've been negative on all of them, which is good. So I'm hopefully allowed to get out of here. I have a friend who actually is the head chef at this hotel. So I chose his hotel. He's an Italian chef and he's been sending me some good food. Ah, wonderful. So what has he been preparing? Well, what is his speciality? Well, he's kind of from the Northeast of Italy. And, you know, a lot of pasta because you're eating out of a cardboard box, right? So some food works better. Not much actually works good out of a cardboard box. Pasta can work. As long as it's hot, you know, pizza and stuff like that. You can't really get a T-bone steak in a cardboard box. I've been eating mostly Thai food just because I've been away from Thailand for a long time. So I've missed Thai food. Because one of the greatest things about civilization and a history of culture that the Thais have is food culture. Right? And mm -hmm. I think that's true of most places that have a, a history of a monarchy and mm -hmm. an established Court, you know, French cuisine or, or Chinese mm -hmm. cuisine or Thai cuisine or Japanese cuisine. In America, we just throw a hamburger on a bun and eat it. You pretty much are a historian, right? You have a history background. I did that in my undergraduate degree when I was in the United States. Yeah, mm -hmm. I studied, graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in History. And that's what and led me on my little exploratory journey all around the world. Yeah. So tell me about that. Uh, and I want to come back to your history background and maybe you can elaborate how that relates to the history of a country relative to their culinary identity. You no, know, I went to university as an 18-year-old boy and started off trying to study chemistry, organic chemistry. I was a bit of an outdoorsman, so I thought I was actually going to be kind of an environmental scientist, you know, testing the pH levels of trout streams and making sure that the grizzly bear was protected in the forest. And so I went to school in Colorado, which is way out in the Midwest of the United States with the Rocky Mountains nearby. But things change in your life. You take a few classes, you have a great professor, and he was a professor of Chinese history, of all things. And this was back in 1982. I became fascinated by just the amount of history, because obviously China has had a continuous historical record for many mm -hmm. thousands of years. And that kind of led into the fascination with the language, which again is completely different from what we know in European or Western civilization. And then that led a bit maybe into the martial arts. I think most all boys, maybe growing up, you know, you watch uh, Kung Fu and, and Bruce Lee movies and all that kind of stuff. But I was very much into the historical martial discipline side of traditional martial arts, less so mm -hmm. than like, I'm not a big MMA fan, but I, I'd be a traditional martial art fan. Why are you not an MMA fan, by the way? And how does that differ from traditional martial arts? That's a very good question. Uh, and again, we could spend an hour on this one. But, <laughs> we might. Uh, well, because traditional martial arts are, as the name implies, are martial in nature. And they, they are therefore used to defend oneself and one's life or one's friends and family's life, for one. For two, the assumption always in martial arts is that you have more than one attacker and you can never engage 
fully with one attacker while there are multiple attackers around you. So mm -hmm. A, you're in defensive mode. B, it's for your life. So you don't mess around. There's no pads. Mm -hmm. You know, kicking to the groin is allowed. Eye gouging is allowed. Strikes mm -hmm. to the throat are allowed. And you're there against potentially three to four attackers, maybe even six attackers with knives and baseball bats. So you put mm -hmm. that in perspective, you know, an MMA fight to me, I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The guy's grappling around and of course, some of the technique and the fighting and the punching skill is, is quite incredible, but it's a very different thing. The set mm -hmm. of rules in a confined space with one opponent and it's not, you know, of course, martial arts as they're practiced in a dojo or in a place where you practice a discipline you're not killing people in the practice arena, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but you mm -hmm. are preparing to defend your life. If you're a, a serious black belt martial artist, you wouldn't be like Conor McGregor throwing a trash can at a bus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in other words, you're saying that it's because uh, traditional martial arts is built around the idea of self-defense, it is aimed at being used lethally or as a self-defense weapon. As such, it is something that is, the, the art is respected because there are consequences to it. And your demeanor and your behavior also reflects the fact that you perform that art. Is that it? Exactly. That's why I guess it's called an art. And I, and I think a lot of it's about internal and mental discipline. So all those things kind of go together with, it's, it's not a sport. It's not mm -hmm. a, something that could get used recklessly in a bar or a bar fight or something like that. Wonderful. And so how has that now shaped you as a leader? I mean, it's very interesting because there's Sun Tzu's Art of War, which is like a very well celebrated book, which kind of speaks about the, I think it was an emperor or at least a military strategist who uses Asian philosophy and knowledge. And I think there's some martial arts involved in there to kind of yeah. speak through yeah. strategy. Sun Tzu was actually wrote during the Warring States period in Chinese history when China was at war with itself. There were various warlords, one might say, or warring factions or kings that were continually at war with each other. So his, uh, his bingfa, his uh, way to fight military campaigns, really, and also not to fight, ways to win and achieve your objectives without necessarily having to fight. One of his key tenets was, you know, if you can avoid the fight, you avoid the fight. Of course, many people would call it's actually in Chinese bingfa means the the methodology of moving armies, but it's more as much about the art of peace as it is about mm -hmm. the art of war. Art of war sounds a lot cooler. Right? Nobody would buy it if it was called the art of peace. You know? Yeah, yeah, interesting. So how how do these teachings have they shaped you in any way into your role as an organizational leader? I think I would say as my own personal character and personality, everything that I've experienced in my life has shaped me into what I am today. I think mm -hmm. everyone probably would say that. Maybe some things more than others, and certainly traveling and interacting with people and studying and learning languages and learning self-defense disciplines, which I've studied quite a few with different people in different cultures. I mean, all those things, you know, I think you can always learn, and, and I haven't stopped learning, and I'm still learning today, and I'll probably learn something on this call which I think, you know, from at least maybe my view of what leadership is about, how do you encourage and motivate people to do something greater than they can do on their own? And how do you get them to feel that they want to do that? And I think, you know, we certainly are lacking a lot of that in the world today. And mostly we have selfish leaders who are first and foremost looking out for themselves and their own enrichment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we've always had that challenge throughout history. Maybe the last four years as a U.S. citizen, it was more extreme than it ever had been. And I feel a little bit better now, I could say, <laughs> that there is someone there now who is actually <laughs> trying to get people to work together and trying to mm -hmm. fix problems and make mm -hmm. our lives better. Um, mm -hmm. And I think throughout Africa, you can see that today. And the mm -hmm. strong man or, or, you know, and sometimes it takes a strong man to, to do the right things, but always that challenge of absolute power and corrupting absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, the idea, and, and I mean, touching on Africa, as an African, I feel that there's too much of a savior complex that we have, and not just as Africans, but as humans. Uh, and that's why when elections come, it's the media goes crazy and everyone pays attention. As humans, we have this need to have somebody lead us. 
And what are your thoughts on that? Is it, why is it that we are always looking towards specific people to guide us? And is there a way for people to actually be independent human beings without having to rely on a leader to shape the course of their future? Wow, that's a, that's a fundamental core human question right there. I mean, I think certainly I am a liberalist in the true sense, and I think people should be free as much as possible to do whatever it is that they want to do as long as they're not uh, hurting anyone. But at the same time, I think we do need to organize society, whether that's just a group of people or a, or a state or a county or a country, et cetera. And I think the idea that is still a, a work in progress, as we say in the United States, can people choose leaders who are there to serve the people back, right? So mm -hmm. this concept, I think, is a pretty difficult one, even today, for people to understand that really that's what you know democracy is, right? It is a system where you, you choose the people who you believe have the best policies and have the most integrity to organize things so that the system of government works to support you and, and achieve the objectives. I think sometimes we just, that gets forgotten because people are naturally selfish and they want to do their own thing. And I think there's a firm belief in a lot of places around the world and you see the rise of Putin or Xi Jinping and, and the African strongman, of course. There's always this idea that you need a strong man to get things done. If you don't have a strong mm -hmm. man, things don't get done. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that's really true, but I think certainly the ideal would be that we'd all want to live free and we'd all want to help our fellow man and organize ourselves so that we're efficient and mm -hmm. fair and just, and that we deploy resources for our whole community on a just basis and make things work, right? Mm -hmm. I think, uh, why do you have government? And you, hopefully it makes things work. You, you're not mm -hmm. going to have each person setting up a bus a company to drive buses around. You have chaos, right? You need a, mm -hmm. okay, who's going to organize the bus system? Just a mm -hmm. basic, how about mm -hmm. water? How about trash mm -hmm. collection? So I think if we're going to live together, we have to figure out how best to, to manage that. And then I think that that is the challenge and it's a challenge for democracies and it's a, a challenge for dictatorships. You know, can they do it? Who does it more efficiently, effectively? Certain things work, certain things, you sacrifice things to get certain benefits. That's just the way that works. Mm -hmm. But I guess we were maybe getting to the point where in a free economy, where mm -hmm. in a, a company, right? And it is the shareholder's ability to pick the leader that they want. It's not voted upon by the staff or the people in that company. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the shareholders who own the company, put a leader in place, and then it's that leader's obligation and responsibility to you know, deliver what those shareholders want, but also mm -hmm. motivate people that work in that organization to get what the shareholders want done. And that's mm -hmm. why we have in every single efficient company that we know, it is pretty much a pyramid structure with a CEO at the top and then various shareholder interests sitting on top of that CEO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With that said, what are your thoughts on CEOs who are also shareholders versus CEOs who, who are pretty much managers of the organization? Yeah, well, they're very different animals. There's the entrepreneur, I mean, and many of them have failed along the wayside. So now we look at the ones who have succeeded. And we mm -hmm. might talk about those that still own uh, you know, as much of the company as they can because they generally want to control the company. At the same time, they want the funding and the money to come from people who invest in their vision or the business. Mm -hmm. um, so, you, of course, you have the super, the global super CEOs mm -hmm. that we all know about. But certainly, there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who went on a path to set up what they thought was going to be a huge successful company and it has failed and died by the wayside and they've probably started and done something else. And certainly there are people like myself who have kind of come up through management and have learned the ropes and want to be, think I can always be a better part manager, part leader, you know, part example in a company. But yeah, there's definitely two different tracks there. One, which would be an entrepreneurial track. And that person, in most instances, we'll see how it pans out. Most of the companies mm -hmm. that I think are in your mind are very young. Will they hire professional leadership to run the company in the future? And of course, they'll eventually have to, right? Because a company you hope is going to last for 100 years or 100 years or however, which is the same dilemma I think we, we were just talking about 
countries that rely on one person with one mm. name. Unfortunately, we're not immortal. What happens to that system when that person passes on? Yeah, I mean, so let me maybe like name names. One person, of course, that I was thinking about is uh, Warren Buffett. I'm a bit of a Warren Buffett disciple. And uh, I mean, he's what, 93 years old or something. So he's probably not going to live for, for another 20 years. But he's managed to be uh, a CEO, uh, an interesting mix because he's an investor, right? But he's also the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. And he's kind of his name and Charlie Munger was his partner. They pretty much have carried Berkshire Hathaway to, to where it is today. And they've put a, a succession planning structure in place, which kind of will see Berkshire Hathaway kind of flourish without them, hopefully. Yeah, but I think that they are the cult of forces or personalities that are associated to the brands that they own and manage. On the flip side, you have a relatively younger company, Amazon, with Bezos, who's kind of stepped back as CEO, but he's chairman. So it's still kind of running the company. And so maybe I'm speaking a bit about those are good examples of probably some good succession planning. And Bill Gates kind of did his succession planning after he made peace with his mortality. But do you feel that most of these cultive personalities tend to not think about succession? And unless they are being forced to, to do it? Or is this something that we should be putting more effort into, making sure that there's enough succession planning and less dependence on certain personalities to guide brands? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, in a lot of those examples, the, we don't know yet, right? And that's an easy answer. But certainly, I think as companies like Amazon or Berkshire Hathaway have gotten so large, there's already so much structure, process in place that even when the founder passes on and hands over, that machine will continue to, to run for some time. Mm. Will it run for five years? Will it run for a hundred years? We, that's, that remains to be seen. But I think mm. there are people and, and those examples of those individuals who realize that they're not immortal and have enough humility to know that they believe that they want their company to continue to provide a valuable service to their customers and they want it to continue on into the future beyond their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably all of us as leaders or all of us in our roles. My job is not to be, I mean, partially it's an example, but at a CECOM, which is a smaller company of 300 people, it's not for me to do everything. It's for me to actually, my job is to put the structures, the organizational structure, the mm -hmm. roles, responsibility, the accountability, the procedures and processes in so that it can run without. So when I get mm -hmm. even go on vacation, I will know that the organization will continue to run without me there. I don't have to mm -hmm. be involved in every single decision. That's very mm -hmm. different from, for example, the, the president we had just before the last one, before this mm -hmm. current, mm -hmm. if you want to be every decision, you want to control everything, what are you leaving behind? Obviously, Warren Buffett, I'm also a big fan. This is a very humble guy who does a lot of his own legwork, but is also smart enough to hire smart people and work with smart people around. Yeah. Um, and I think Bezos, it probably, he is a little different because he's really running a business, really started that business selling mm -hmm. used books back in the day. I mean, so he knows everything from the absolute bottom up of an operational business. Mm -hmm. And of course, that business has grown and diversified a bit, but he's very much a hands-on operational of a certain business, whereas obviously Warren Buffett has to be across all many businesses, right? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And looks at things in a different way than a, a Bezos would look. But I think it seems like both of them are thinking that they need to make sure that the company is run professionally. And I think once you're listed and once you have shareholders and you're having quarterly board meetings and you're having all of that, you already have some structure. And then mm -hmm. it's up to that structure, those, those shareholders and those board meetings to appoint the leadership of the operations really a joint stock company. It's a topic that I've been talking a bit about also in my podcast and that I've been looking at quite a bit, listing versus being private. And is it always an advantage to be listed? And what would be an advantage to being private? Yeah, it is a double-edged sword. There's no question about it. I mean, people list, obviously get access to investors' funds and to scale. But I think before you IPO, in most instances, on most bourses and most markets around the world, you're going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that your accounting processes, your audited accounts, your processes, your structures are in place. And then now 
we've seen examples where that hasn't been fully maybe matured enough and people have listed. But the idea is that as you list, the, the preparation for listing and getting your house in order so you can list is pretty onerous. So people, yeah, have that confidence, you would think, if you're a listed company, but we've seen that it's collapsed in many historical examples, right? The accounting of this company was going to, I just read about the Germans and was it uh, the e-wired, but there's always instances where listed companies aren't what they have been purporting themselves to be. And I think what we're seeing more than anything recently is more and more companies going private, not going the route of uh, listing on a major stock exchange. And that you've almost created, because there's so many investors and there's so much private equity out there looking for investments, that you almost have a, I want to say it's almost a parallel investment stock exchange that is mm -hmm. private equity. And they don't necessarily want to have public shareholding meetings, published accounts, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore they do not list, they stay private. Mm -hmm. And the advantage of course are just those things. You do not mm -hmm. have to share all of that information with everybody all the time, but mm -hmm. you can make decisions a lot quicker. You can have a lot more flexibility. And there is now enough funding around the world from other private equity investors that mm -hmm. you, you know, but of course, all of them are trying to get certain advantages as they invest. They won't mm -hmm. go in just like a guy who buys, you know, a ten dollars share. Mm -hmm. They're going to want some sort of control and insight, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I think they're horses for courses, no question about it. But I think the trend seems to be more and more money is going into the private equity side of things and private companies. Interesting. So uh, you touched on you having been somebody who went up the ranks of management. So shall we maybe take a step back to 1982? You found this fascination for the Asian culture and Chinese history. And so how did you go from somebody who was trying to be a chemistry major to becoming where you are right now as a CEO? Yeah. Well, yeah, I graduated from university with my history degree in 1986. And at that time had maxed out all of the courses I could take on Asian history at the university that I attended and decided I was very fortunate in that I'm a, a U.S. citizen and I had applied for a passport mm -hmm. and I lived with my father back in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. and I saved up money and I bought a one-way ticket to fly to Taiwan in 1986. Mm -hmm. So in October of 1986, I flew to Taiwan to learn Mandarin Chinese, because that was what was recommended to me by some of my professors. They said, if you go to Taiwan, you can work, you can teach English, you can live in a free society, and you can study the traditional way of writing the Chinese, which was important to me as a history major. Because as you may know, in 1958, Mao implemented in China the simplified characters. Chinese changed the way they, they write from the old way of writing. And so mm -hmm. all those things, though, work, I had to work because I didn't have any money. I could live in a free society and I could go to school and learn the old way of writing traditional Chinese characters. So I went to Taiwan uh, with a backpack and a guy's address and wandered around the streets of Taipei looking lost until I finally found someone who took pity on me. Yeah. And then I, I stayed in Taiwan and studied Mandarin and was doing martial arts and stayed there for about three years. And at that time was going back and forth to China uh, and Hong Kong and actually to Thailand even. This was 86 to you know, 89. And then I, I moved to Hong Kong and started working in China in early 1990. Yeah. And I worked in China for seven years and on and off on different things in different industries. So I worked in the computer industry. I worked in the fast moving consumer goods industry, publishing industry, consulting industry. And through that, got a job with the manufacturing, in the manufacturing industry with a company called Texas Instruments, who Everyone knows because they used to make those little calculators. So we, we were making some other products, but making them in China. So I started it, it kind of in a larger multinational company that was in 19, 1994 yeah, in China. And then from there, it just so happened that the CEO of British Telecom, BT, Sir Peter Bonfield, was a XTI guy. So I just had an in and ended up joining telecommunications without having any knowledge whatsoever of telecommunications. Didn't even know really what telecoms companies did back in 1990. Um, seven and uh, yeah, started at BT in Hong well, Kong. So, well. you know, then learned a lot, but as I said, the previous experience was also great because there are a lot, you know, a lot of people go into an industry and they stay in that one industry their whole life. I had actually worked from computers to publishing, to uh, consumer goods, to everything else before I went into telecommunications and even mm -hmm. in telecommunications, of course, 
you have kind of the consumer end with mobile telephony and you have the more business to business or industrial side with the construction of networks and network sharing and infrastructure and all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would you say that you applied through your professional career that rose you to become an executive manager of companies? Because not everybody gets to become CEO, right? It's again, you mentioned the bottom up, the pyramid structure. I think it's also the same with management. Not everybody makes it to senior management. So what are the things that you learned and that you applied that kind of gave you the skills and the confidence maybe to, to take on such responsibilities? Yeah, I think that point about confidence is probably the most important one. I've always been fairly confident and have confidence in what I can do. But I, I would also say that you have to be, let's face it, there's luck involved, right? And I would say, if you ask me the first one, I'd probably say luck is number one. Just because I think you have to have some luck and being in the right place at the right time when things are happening. And I was fortunate that I was, of course, you make some decisions. Do, you, do I leave when I left Texas Instruments to join telecommunications? And the back of my head was, you know, okay, here I'm manufacturing widgets that go into another widget that gets put in somebody's house. That's one I could continue mm-hmm. to do that. But here's an opportunity with the internet. And this time, mm-hmm. just when people were getting mobile phones in 1999, right? 97, sorry. Mobile phones were kind of a new thing. Data and the internet was kind of a new thing in 97. And so I think I kind of thought, okay, if, if I'm going to grow in an industry, and it's not to say you, you don't change, but I thought, let me try telecommunications. This is interesting. It's kind of has a future. It seems mm-hmm. like it's benefiting society and that the more, you know, with my background, I thought the more the world can communicate and understand each other and share information, that's got to be good for healthcare around the world and peace and everything else. So it's not like you do it for some kind of altruistic motives, but you don't want to be associated with something that is polluting the world or destroying the world or doing something bad. So I think there was that aspect of what it represented, right? Was this the dawn of the internet, right? The dawn of handheld communication devices that are attached to you and could open up all this information and all this knowledge and all this sharing. I chose the kind of, I chose the industry and left the manufacturing industry to go into telecommunications. But yeah, you, you kind of make those choices. And I think that's kind of an important one to make is what industry, what thing do you want to be doing that you're going to feel motivated to do and it is going to give you a future growth strategy. And, and now I would say the kind of telecommunications companies that I worked for back in those days, they're in trouble, right? That whole industry is in, in trouble and having to reshape itself, right? The future of what that whole journey, it was 20, whatever, 22, 25 years ago. Yeah, that was build the infrastructure. People were just using SMS. There was no iPhone. There was no, I mean, the internet was just the rudimentary stage, stages of, communication, data communication, very slow data communication. And if you look today, most of the telecommunications companies that I was talking about are now trying to find new revenue and future growth streams from becoming content players or mobile money players or something other than just that basic communication service, because the return on investment in that area now is, is kind of under a lot of pressure from the new guys. And those, mm-hmm. those new guys, we might call the hyperscalers, but mm-hmm. since you mentioned Amazon, they're up there in that group I'm talking about. Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Oracle, you name it, that are kind of in that, or Apple, in mm-hmm. that world. Uh, now are changing that industry dramatically. So people now might start to look at those kind of companies and say, hey, is there 20 years of future in those kind of businesses and where are things going to head? Which is very different from when I made that decision back in 1997. But I think then you talk about personality traits and things that patience, right? I used to not have much of that. So that was something you learned and humility and to listen to people. I mean, all these things you could rattle off. And patience. Can you delve a little bit on that? I mean, I see humility and the ability to listen. So the ability to listen is amazing. But can you maybe touch on patience? Why is that a virtue? Excuse the pun. Yeah. Well, I think it also goes back to that listening, right? Because I'm an impatient person and I recognize that in myself, right? I want to usually get going and jump on things. And sometimes that means you cut people off and you don't listen. But it also means, I think, in a large organization, because whether the company is 300 people or 30,000 people or 30 people, you're pretty much dealing with your own little 10 or 15 people that you really interact with all the time. I mean, you might, in a 300-person company, I could say I probably knew 80% of the people on a first-name basis, maybe. 
back in the day when CCOM was 40 people, I knew everybody, first name, last name, family. But I think when you're working with people, right, you've got to be patient, right? You can't always push your way. You've got to listen and wait for the opportunities, let people have their say. And I think within an organization, people do see that, right? They see that, at least in well-run organizations, when they recognize a level-headed person who listens, who considers, who thinks through things, evaluates things, and comes up with proposals to make things better, you don't find a lot of those people all the time. You find people who complain, who shout out their idea, who shout over other people. And these are just human characteristics uh, of people. And you have to learn to, through your life. As I said, I'm still learning today, right? And I think that patience and also within an organization, how do you get things done? How fast you can change that organization and achieve that organization's objectives. It's very easy to overpromise things, whether it's your boss or your boss could be the board of directors and then not be able to deliver. But of course, no boss and no shareholder is going to accept you not promising something. And they're always going to want to push you to be more aggressive than you probably can achieve. So how do you balance between what he, what they, shareholders, or he wants me to do, what's achievable, and you know what I can do and how long is it going to take? Because we're all usually optimistic on how thing, how quickly we can do something, how aggressive we could change this or do that. And, and organizations are big, slow beasts of a lot of people. And the bigger they get, the slower they are. Agreed, yeah. I think a lot of the big companies around the world that are operational companies, how do you change that? How do you segment the company into its various businesses so that they can be nimble enough and not so large and not so slow and not so bureaucratic to achieve? So you pretty much have just described maybe a strategy for what big companies can do to maintain agility despite the size of the organization. Yeah. And I think you see that as people grow a business and then they start to hive off different divisions. And of course you always mm -hmm. have, in, I've been working in multinational corporations. Of course you always have this, is it a regional structure? Is there a product structure that's global? And it, it always changes back and forth. And these are the traditional battles that you always have. How local mm -hmm. can you be while being global, while driving efficiency and maximizing scale and profitability while meeting local customers' needs. And that battle always continues. And when do you start to fragment your company into sub-segments of mm -hmm. the market? And how do you go about doing that? Is a service that is built for consumers, how do you maybe sell that into businesses you know, as a simple example? Okay. So I'm taking a step back now as well to the telecommunications business. And specifically, you mentioned the companies who are now trying to find a new identity in terms of their profitability and revenue and the fact that they are pretty much under pressure from the incumbents, right? Which are the hyperscalers. How do companies such as Google, who are now technically by building cable infrastructure, they're going to essentially evolve into telecommunications companies, right? Is that what you see? First and foremost, I don't think that, again, depends how you define telecommunications, that Google or Facebook or Microsoft are really trying to become communications companies, telecommunications or, or otherwise. In other words, they're not like a CCOM or like a BT. They're not trying to sell a service of, I will deliver your data from point A to point B. And if you have a problem, you call Google and go, hey, my line's down. That's not Google. That's not mm -hmm. Facebook. Really what's happening is they are the biggest transmitters and receivers of data in the world. Mm -hmm. And where they used to buy that service from telecommunications companies, they are now so big and require so much that they need to build their own network. This is just like a, if you were a reseller of books and all of a sudden your volume grows so much, you need to start publishing your own books. You need to print them and get the paper mm -hmm. because you cannot continue in that kind of, let's call it a reseller model. So but this transmitter data and users of data and they're moving so much more data around the world than anybody else. So as a, a result of that, not only are they building their own submarine cable systems, and a lot of times they do it jointly with other parties, but they're building their data centers where they house their servers and they're building even domestic or terrestrial uh, fiber infrastructure in a lot of places as well. So, mm. and these are all things that they self-consume. Although I saw that Facebook said they might introduce a, a wholesale arm and sell to a limited number of telecommunications company wholesale services. But mm -hmm. I still don't think that, I'm not sure if that's going to fly. If Facebook has in its mind that BT may call it or AT&T and say, hey, 
Facebook, my circuit's down, fix it tomorrow. Facebook would be like, what? Who's that? That's not their business, right? Their business is to provide the platform and the advertising that's on that platform. And more and more, some of Amazon, the compute power, all of those things. Now, even when a Microsoft or an Amazon sell their services to an enterprise, they are delivered in partnership over usually a telecommunications provider's network. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to see Microsoft or Amazon start building out local fiber networks and connecting the building. So the customer calls and complains, it goes, hey, Microsoft, my circuit's down, fix it. That won't happen. Mm-hmm. Microsoft doesn't want it to happen, I don't think. Right? They would rather mm-hmm. say, you know, hey, everything on Microsoft side is in our server farm in this uh, data center. It's all fine. You've got a problem with your connectivity into that. That's your network providers. Uh, so of course, I think what's happening is where does that leave telecommunications providers? Where can they make their money? Where can they grow their revenue? And as mm-hmm. I said to you, even if you look in the space that was the, the holy grail of money-making back in the day, it was a license to print money, was mobile network operators, right? Mm-hmm. And now they're struggling to see any growth. They're having to invest. It was 3G was going to save the day, then 4G and LTE. Now it's 5G. Now people mm-hmm. are already talking about 6G. And these guys are thinking, I've just got to keep investing all this capital into my network. And nobody wants to pay more per month for their mobile phone bill. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, everybody offers WhatsApp, offers Mm -hmm. all this stuff, Instagram. They end up getting bought by most of the big operators. But I'm just saying that, you know, where is the the revenue that justifies that investment in infrastructure? And so Mm -hmm. I do see that there's going to be kind of a bit of a challenge and it's already being faced. And that's why you're seeing a lot of the telecommunications companies going into content delivery with subscription models for content and TV channels, or they're going into mobile money or FinTech because they realize that the the revenue growth on sending a text or WhatsApp or data volume just keeps going up and the price keeps going down. Mm. And you might correct me on this, but for me, I feel that the fundamentals of a true telecommunications companies in their infrastructure, right? So at some point, you've got to get a return on the capital that you're investing in your infrastructure. So the telecommunications companies, as we have them now, are still investing. But at some point, that money is going to run dry and then they won't be able to maintain their infrastructure because the returns will not meet the investment required. And the way that I see it is, on the other end, the infrastructure spend that the likes of Google have is so minimal to them that they're not sweating it. So eventually they're going to be left as the only players who can actually afford to maintain infrastructure and to own infrastructure, right? I I would say when you talk about data center to data center infrastructure, which is a a little bit of a, and what I'm talking about there is Google or let's just call them the FANG or whatever you want to call them, the hyperscale. They would have large data centers in Johannesburg and Cape Town, right? Mm -hmm. They might have one in Nairobi and they might have one on Lagos. They're not Mm -hmm. going to be all over. And they want to make sure that they can connect those data centers with the lowest, absolutely lowest cost with huge Mm -hmm. volume, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in some ways you could look at it as this presents an opportunity, which is now Google and Facebook are building these cables, the Equiana cable you mentioned, also the cable mm-hmm. called To Africa that also goes all the way around Africa. And there's other cables that are being talked about, and I'm just, we'll stick to Africa. But mm-hmm. the telecommunications companies in Africa were not going to build those cables. Mm-hmm. The last cable that was built by the telecommunications companies was WAX in 2012. So, mm-hmm. of course, there was no one stopping the telecommunications companies from investing in that big infrastructure. They just didn't have, as you say, the funding. And they have to also run their local networks. If you look at it another way, by having Facebook and Google invest into this subsea infrastructure, the big super highways that link these data centers together, then telecommunications companies can focus on building up the terrestrial, domestic, and pan-African infrastructure that is needed to connect those data centers to where customers are, right? So in some ways you'd say, okay, you Vodafone group or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you now are going to be riding on those cable systems. You can spend now that money on the 5G rollouts, more fiber to base stations, more expansion on Mm -hmm. your your services that you offer to customers, because you didn't have to go and drive and build those subsea cable systems. They're getting built. Mm -hmm. And now you can Mm -hmm. connect to the content and the applications that people want, right? Because that's now in Johannesburg. It's now in Cape Town. It's now in Nairobi and it's now in Lagos. But certainly if you, within the telecommunication industry, 
the prognosis for wholesale long haul transmission in and out of Africa to Europe, obviously that prognosis would say that part of the market is mm -hmm. going to be under huge pressure. And that's probably a very mild understatement. It's going to be under huge pressure, but certainly a customer sitting in a neighborhood outside of Santon, they need connectivity to their office building, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to provide that? It's not going to be Amazon, Google, Facebook, or anybody mm -hmm. else. It's going to be a telecommunications provider. All right. So you pretty much are touching on there's a bigger opportunity for play in local connectivity rather than global connectivity. Yeah, I mean, they're all intertwined. I'm just saying from a, where would you invest in your infrastructure? And I would say, if you're a telecommunications company and I'm going to have consumer customers, I'm going to have SME, small, medium-sized enterprise customers, and I'm going to have corporate customers, I need to get to them, right? And mm -hmm. be their service provider. Google's mm -hmm. not going to come knock on their door and say, hey, sir, I'll connect your fiber up tomorrow, right? That's not going to happen. Even though that company may be using Amazon or Microsoft or whoever, mm -hmm. they need to get to them. And that's going to be a telecommunications company. And I think that certainly there's, other things that telecommunications companies, and then maybe that's a little bit of an old term, but the security comes with that, the reliability, the management of all of that, so that you have voice, you have data, you have internal protocols and certain dedicated lines for certain applications that are absolutely critical and maybe mm. need lower latency. I mean, there's all these things that as a corporation, I'm going to be looking for, maybe less so as a home user, but even as a home user mm. in my in a high-rise building with the small apartments and just couples, or am I big residential family homes with the larger requirements and, and multi-people living in that complex, et cetera? So, I mean, even at a home level, you'd say, well, how do you package what to the yeah. customer? And I mean, I'm just saying Amazon's not doing that. Google's not doing mm -hmm. that. If the hyperscalers are building the global superhighway, then that leaves more targeted investment to be had on the local and domestic infrastructure. I was talking about mm. So with that said, I'm going to maybe not belabor the point a little bit more, but with Africa, one of the challenges in Africa, of course, is actually getting the infrastructure, especially the terrestrial infrastructure, right? So, and with that, what are your thoughts? Terrestrial infrastructure versus this renewed interest in satellite infrastructure, thanks to Elon Musk and SpaceX with the Starlink. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a few questions there. So first of all, yeah, if you looked at Europe today, right, and let's just use that as an example, obviously you have the European Union, but if I want to buy a circuit from a Marseille in the South of France, over to Amsterdam, into London, back to Madrid, nothing could be easier. I could probably choose from 20 suppliers, all of them own and operate fiber, maintain the fiber, put their electronics on it, can operate. If I wanted to get a circuit from Harare, go to Dar, and then up into Nairobi and Kampala, yeah. that's not going to happen. Mm. It's going to be so hard to get that done even from anyone. It's just not going to happen. You'd be better off probably going out from Harare through Johannesburg, out through on a subsea cable system, up to Dar, up to Mombasa. <laughs> into that, yeah. So you rely on subsea because there is no ability to build really a pan-African terrestrial network. Is there no ability or no, what's the well, word? You have to have the regulations have to yeah. be there. But even let's assume that the regulations allowed it, that these markets opened up to competitive building, which they are gradually doing. I think you, then you have the bigger challenge, which is unfortunately when you build terrestrial infrastructure, generally speaking, fiber optic cables, they're put either next to a railway or they're put next to a road works or mm -hmm. a sewage or drainage or some civil construction that allows for an ease of repair and maintenance of the electronics that need to be placed uh, mm -hmm. into that network. Now, that's obviously looking at Africa, that's the big challenge, right? Mm -hmm. there, if, there, if there was a highway that would allow me to drive from Harare to Dar to... Nairobi to Kampala efficiently mm -hmm. and effectively and safely, then it would be easy to put fiber in. I mean, I understood. Right? Mm -hmm. There would be street lights and security and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. um, but because that's not the case, then it's very hard. You're asking someone now to put fiber in the ground, maintain and protect it. And because there's none of that underlying infrastructure, it's probably going to cost five to 10 times more than it mm -hmm. would in Europe. 
that. Mm -hmm. Yet your customer wants to pay half or 20% uh, mm -hmm. of the price that you have. Yeah. So that is unfortunately a kind of a circular dilemma. And I think as we, and that's why mobile in Africa has always been kind of the uh, solution of choice because mm -hmm. it's you know, in the air. Mm -hmm. And that's why mm -hmm. satellites are also a potential solution. And I say mm -hmm. potential because all of these things, there's nothing cheaper than having multiple fiber optic cables uh, running between cities or between locations for the mm -hmm. cheap speed and reliability of transmitting data. Uh, but if you mm -hmm. can't have that, mm -hmm. then you need to go mobile, satellite, microwave. There's other solutions. Are mm -hmm. they as good? No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they get a lot of hype. And I think we saw the balloons of certain companies that were going to fly around in the air and these kind of things. And, and those are kind of trying to encourage, I think, data uptake and even encourage other telecommunications companies to actually address the problem, right? That you're kind of prodding mm -hmm. companies to do that. But yeah, it, it needs to be a, a concerted effort from, I mean, you can see everywhere around the world, governments are still involved, even in developed countries, with broadband rollout to rural areas. It could be in Australia, it could be in the United States with this infrastructure package. It could be in Africa, right? There needs to be hand in glove with civil infrastructure together with telecommunications or data infrastructure rollout. And that's the challenge, right? It's a lot of money. It's a, a lot of cost that needs to be sunk into something that has to also be maintained. Mm -hmm. So finally, do you feel that, or do you, with your experience, have you kind of maybe formulated what would be um, a solution or is this just like a, something that would get resolved slowly over time? If you look at, at, at CECOM, we knew that more and more of Africa is connecting onto subsea cables, right? So whether you're, as I said, if you're in Kampala, you actually end up going pretty much through Nairobi, Mombasa, out on the subsea cable system. Right? So once that started happening, you had to have east and west mm -hmm. uh, paths for your network, right? To make sure you had resiliency around the continent. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we, Seacom in 2019, acquired Fiberco, a company that had a lot of fiber around South Africa. Okay, so mm -hmm. this is a step on a journey, right? Mm -hmm. But it really wasn't being activated and utilized, maybe as we thought it should be, which is to say, mm -hmm. lit at terabytes, become a superhighway that mm -hmm. allows not just to connect Johannesburg to Cape Town or in mm -hmm. Durban, but actually to allow the east coast of Africa to be able to route traffic cheaply and easily onto the west coast. Mm -hmm. So that I would say, if you look at it, it's great that that's happened in South Africa. Does it need to happen between Dar and Angola? Does it need to happen between Mombasa and Brazzaville? Does it need to, should mm -hmm. Africa have kind of a huge grid network mm -hmm. uh, of fiber? If you were to look at Europe, a map of Europe, it would shock mm -hmm. you versus a map of, of Africa. Africa. I think so, that's mm -hmm. where it will get to. It's just, mm -hmm. as I said, it, it takes time, right? Mm -hmm. So the solution is for a terrestrial grid network as opposed to the continental ring network that we currently have, right? Because it's like a ring yeah. around Africa, but there's no grids interconnecting the, 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 the cables together to, to reduce the latency and give more access to people inland. Exactly. So it would give more access. To, I mean, wouldn't you love it, Tony, if you could jump into your super duper Audi S8 and drive from Johannesburg, boom, I'm going to stop in Harare, head to Dar and go have lunch up in Kampala or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. But the idea of that right now would be impossible. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. But certainly if you said to me, hey, Byron, I'm going to fly into Rome and I'm going to hit Zurich and then go into Vienna and drive up to Amsterdam and for dinner, I'm going to be in Stockholm. I'd say, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll of course, yeah. Day, have fun. fun. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, you wouldn't have to worry about gas or anything would it'd be okay. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's the fiber infrastructure is not going to happen without the highways and the guardrails and the power and all the other infrastructure that needs to come. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I would think it'd be great if I'm sure, I'm sure for people all over Africans, right. If you could jump on a bus, an Aircon bus line and take a bus from Mombasa to Johannesburg, wouldn't that be great? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lovely. Um, yeah. But you have to fly. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so flying is kind of like the subsea cable. Mm -hmm. 
that's kind of yeah. get, out, get out and get into international waters and then and then land in Mombasa. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, wonderful. So I'm gonna just to wrap up. I want to just go back to you touched something interesting about the cultures of countries that had long-lasting monarchies. Is that something maybe that you want to like expound on? Yeah, well, I think the distribution of, of labor and the organization of people and, and cultures with that, one of the benefits of that, it had a lot of negatives, don't get me wrong. One of the benefits of that was you had, you know, that kind of specialization and you had the creation of wealth amongst an upper structure that might've been unfair mm-hmm. and might've mm-hmm. exploited people, but it created a culture of enjoyment, pleasure. And I think that really drives what we would might call recreation, whether that could be playing tennis uh, mm-hmm. or golf or sitting down and eating something that is you know, utterly delicious and fantastic. And that people would spend the amount of time they spend in preparing and making something. And one of the things that still kind of blows me away, and I know you didn't have a great experience in Thailand, but it doesn't matter whether it's Thailand or Japan or, or China mm-hmm. or Italy or a lot of places. And even in Africa, you have where you find really, really attention to detail and people take the time to do something, it's going to be pretty good. usually. And mm-hmm. you understand the effort that goes into something, to making something taste good. So we live to eat and we enjoy that. And, and it's an experience that we appreciate as opposed to just eating something that could be like Soylent Green and we just eat it for sustenance yeah, um, yeah. And, and experience no enjoyment from. So I think it, it has come from that historical mm-hmm. legacy, which is mm-hmm. that as you had this hierarchical structure of society, you had a diversification of labor the guys became cooks, professional chefs, and learned to mm-hmm. prepare food in mm-hmm. a special way. It wasn't just mm-hmm. everyone made it at home in a big pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, that takes, takes time. And I'm just blessed that I have the ability to enjoy all of that ex- history. And when I take a mouthful of a fried chicken with garlic and chili sauce that I had for, for lunch today. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Wow. Byron, thank you so much for obliging me and for making yourself available. Thank you so much, Byron. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the DevBox podcast on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts by simply searching DevBox. That is D-E-V-B-O-K-S, DevBox. Also, hit the follow button on social media by simply searching DevBox, D-E-V-B-O-K-S. We're on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on LinkedIn. Until next time, peace.